celebrates a weekend in his honor, 51 years since his assassination. I wonder if he would focus, as many do, on all the progress that has been made in civil rights in this nation. Or I wonder if he would look at our nation today and say the tendency does not look like that progress is going to go forward too much longer. I wonder what he would say if he knew that in this pulpit was a former white supremacist leader talking on his day to his African-American brothers and sisters. I have to think, I have to think that that last one would bring a bit of a smile and a smirk to his face. I have to think that. To God be the glory. Now you know that if you've heard me speak or preach, you know I don't have the most positive prognosis when it comes to our nation's treatment of racial issues. Because I know things that no one else knows. I've been places where I guarantee you, you have never been. And frankly, most white people have never been either. And I know the thinking. And I hear the rhetoric. And it speaks to me in ways that just goes over the head of most people, but not all people. And I know what they're talking about. And oftentimes you do too. I wish I could say that everything just seems great, but I would be lying, and I think you would know that I was lying if I said that. We had hoped for better by now. We had hoped. We should be much further along the road than we are right now. Yes, we have come a long way. And I say we because you are my brothers and my sisters. We should have come further than what we have. And some, I fear, are losing hope. Some are tired. Some have their eyes opened. And they see the news. And they hear the politicians. And they do not have a very rosy picture ahead. And some, I fear, are losing hope. But listen to me. When hope seems lost, hang on at any cost. You hear that? When hope seems lost, you hang on at any cost. Because we often look at the price of doing things, and we forget the cost of not doing. This morning, I want to look at the earliest of our Older Testament writing prophets. His name is Obadiah. He's one that you have probably maybe never have read. 
You, you, you couldn't find it if you had to. It only, it only takes up one, maybe two pages of your Bible, depending on how print, big the print is. He is the earliest writing prophet that we have. It is so full of good insights, but yet so easy to miss. At first glance, it seems, as, as Pastor Joe uh, read for us, it seems mostly just a pronouncement of doom on one of the Jewish people's enemies, but there is a message of hope that comes through that we dare not miss because when hope seems lost, we've got to hang on at any cost. Obadiah is the book that bears, uh, the author of the book that bears his name. He received a vision from God and he wrote down what God had showed him and said to him. And that's really about all we know about him. His name means servant of Jehovah. That's pretty much it. There are over a dozen Obadiahs mentioned throughout the text of the Old Testament, but we don't know if he was any of those other ones mentioned. It was a common name. And because Jeremiah quotes from this short book, and because Joel quotes from this short book, we can at least pinpoint the, the time that he wrote. He wrote about 845 B.C. Mm-hmm. Now, in some of, your, some of your study Bibles, it might have a much, much later date than that. Uh, but, well, they're wrong. <laughs> I mean, if you can date Jeremiah and you can date Joel, and they're both quoting from Obadiah, then it stands to reason that Obadiah wrote first. So he wrote from about 845 B.C. So what in the world would a one-page book written 3,000 years ago on the other side of the world have in it that would help us find hope in these times? Obadiah writes about two countries, Israel and Edom. He's prophesying the total destruction of Edom. Because of the way they have treated Israel. Listen to just the first two verses. I'm going to be using the New Living Translation as I go through this message. This is the vision that the Sovereign Lord revealed to Obadiah concerning the land of Edom. We have a message from the Lord that an ambassador was sent to the nations to say, Get ready everyone, let's assemble our armies and attack Edom. The Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations, and you will be greatly despised. Well, who were these Edomites? The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, while the Jews descended from Esau's brother, twin brother, Jacob. They were brother nations. While the Moabites and the Ammonites were a sort of a cousin relationship to Israel. Oh no, not Edom. Edom was the brother nation. They were closer to Israel. They were brothers. But because Edom was characterized by an unbrotherly attitude toward Israel, the prophets condemned Edom more severely than the Moabites and the Ammonites. But why? What was Edom's great crime? Well, there were several. 
and they seem as if they were torn out of the pages of today's newspapers. Here's the first one. See if this sounds familiar. The first one is pride. It says, you have been deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach us way up here, you ask boastfully. But even if you soar as high as eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. The Lord don't play. He's serious. You know, there is a definite problem when one group of people begin to think that they are superior to other groups of people. When you start looking at others as inferior, as not as good as you are, as worthless, disposable, unnecessary, God says that's a problem. Proverbs sixteen eighteen: pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. Obadiah points out that Edom's pride was in her security in the mountains. In the mountains, she dwelled in this rock fortress, and among the mountains, like little nests in the clefts of the rock, were these major strongholds and cities of of the nation of Edom. They were Selah, Timon, Dedan, and Basra, also known as Petra. By virtue of the heights in which they sat be extremely difficult for another nation to come up and invade them. As a matter of fact, they were under siege at one point, one of the major cities. Another nation was gathered around at the bottom of the mountain trying to figure out how can we get up to that city to get them without them getting us because they would be up on, on the top with, with, with spears and bowls and arrows and all they had to do was throw rocks and boulders down on them. You couldn't climb up. They were up high. They had the best vantage point. And so they laid siege and they watched and they waited and they watched 24 hours a day and they sat there and they watched and all of a sudden one of the guards up on the mountaintop dropped his helmet and it came tumbling down and they watched this guard Climb down the rocks in a certain place and retrieve his helmet and then clamber back up the side of the mountain. And they said, that's the way in. And that's exactly what they did. So, pride... They thought no one can no one can touch us, no one can get to us, no one can hurt us. Of course, pride brings its own consequences. I mean, if God destroyed every group of people on earth that had thought they were better than someone else, there wouldn't be very many people left, would there? But when we think of white supremacy... When we think that in the last week we've heard an Iowa congressman ask the question, 
Well, when did white supremacy become offensive? When wasn't it offensive? When isn't it offensive to God? Pride. What else was Edom guilty of? Violence. Their violence against Jacob, Israel. Again, the Edomites were descendants of Esau, the twin brother of Jacob, from whom the Jews descended. So that the violence of Edom against Israel is the violence of brother against brother. And this makes the crime all that much more hideous. Obadiah, verse 10, Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 4? The Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Yes, we are our brother's keepers. Yes, we are our sister's keepers. We are put here on this earth to take care of each other. That's why we are here. DNA has shown what the Bible has been trying to tell us for millennia. We are all related. Regardless of whether your heritage is Africa or Europe or Asia, regardless of what color your skin might be, whether it be black or brown or white, it doesn't matter. We are all related. Science has now proved it. But if you read the Bible, you would have known it years ago. Pride and violence. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. When hope seems lost, hang on at any cost. The third one is inactivity. Just standing by and watching it happen. Inactivity. Evident when Edom stood on the other side without helping them. It says that when they were invaded, verse 11, when, when, when Israel was invaded by these other nations, you, Edom, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem. But you acted like one of Israel's enemies. These foreigners, the Philistines, the the Arabs in the area, they attacked and they sacked and they plundered Jerusalem. The proper attitude of the Edomites should have been one of intervention and aid. They should have come and helped their brothers. But when we feel others are inferior to us, when we feel others don't matter, why would we intervene? We've been too quiet, too comfortable, and too complacent in this country for too long. The church included. All of the church. We have been too quiet, too comfortable, and too complacent for too long. Their sins were pride and violence and inactivity. Oh, but don't forget that when hope Seems lost, hang on at any cost. Here's the fourth one. There's only five. The fourth one, arrogance. 
arrogance. Verses 12 and 13. God says, you should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. Glee, gloating over the fall of Jerusalem. They were delighted. They were happy. They were rejoicing over Jerusalem's destruction. And God says it ought not be. These are your brothers. They looked on with smiles and smirks during the day of Israel's disaster. They rejoiced on the day of Israel's destruction. They spoke proudly on the day of Israel's distress. And we see those same attitudes prevalent in so many of today's people because they forget that we are our brother's keeper. Pride, violence, inactivity, arrogance. Perhaps the greatest crime is found in verse 14. Betrayal. You should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. Edom is destined for destruction because they began blocking the escape routes. The enemies have come in to take over Jerusalem. And some people are trying to escape. And Edom blocks the escape routes. Instead of helping their brothers, they make sure their brothers can't escape. And those few that do escape, Edom goes out and captures them and drags them back and turns them over to the enemies to be slaves. Pride, violence, inactivity, arrogance, betrayal. It sounds like it's right out of today's news, doesn't it? You don't have to go very far in a daily news feed to find examples of it all. So where's the hope? Where is the hope? Where's something we can hold on to? Because when hope seems lost, hang on at every cost. But what do you hang on to? Prophecy of Obadiah with a vision of hope. The same promise of hope that will sustain you and me. Verse 15 and verse 21. The day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. And the Lord himself will be king. It reminds me very much so of the ending of one of my other favorite Old Testament books, and that's the book of Habakkuk. I've preached on that before. Listen to the end of Habakkuk. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, 
and there are no grapes on the vines. Even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. You see, when hope seems lost, you hang on at every cost. Because our God is the God of the universe. Our God is bigger than Edom. Our God is bigger than what we face here in America today. Our God will be on the throne long after the politicians we know today are gone and forgotten. Our God will be there. And there will come the day when our God shall bring full salvation to us. Full salvation. Our hearts will rejoice. Our lips will sing. Our faces will glow. Our burdens will lift. Our problems will be solved. Our heartaches will be gone. Our hearts will be healed. Our tears will be dried. Our gloom will give way to glory. Our weakness will give way to strength. Our worries will give way to contentment. Our hope will give way to reality. Because when hope seems lost, hang on to every, at every cost.